Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Fawn Carson and I'm Senior Managing Editor at OccupationalTherapy.com. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Dennis Cleary, discussing men in occupational therapy with our guest, Andre Johnson. Thanks for listening. Well, Mr. Andre Johnson, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate you being with us today. Could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your career as an occupational therapy practitioner to date, and what some of your eventual goals might be? Good morning, Dennis. A pleasure to be on here. Um, so I'm an occupational therapy assistant of 13 years. Uh, my clinical practice areas were pediatrics and orthopedics, um, and I've also had additionally some experience in uh, academia as well. Um, my future goals are to work in um, practice, uh, particularly community practice, uh, likely working in orthopedics or a pediatric uh, community um, setting, um, and additionally, um, potentially some part-time academic work as well. Um, so those are some of the things looking forward to. Gotcha. So you're currently an, an occupational therapy assistant, but you're also in school to be to become an occupational therapist, right? Yes, absolutely. So uh, yes, I'm at Florida a and University, um, and I'm currently an occupational therapy student. Um, I just completed actually my uh, first level two rotation. Um, that was in orthopedics. So yes, that is definitely going to be part of my new, I would say, career arc um, in being in regards to being an occupational therapist and um, fulfilling that role. Wonderful. So I think we did meet at AOTA a few years ago, and I think any male OT will say anytime you meet another male OT, there's there's not like a secret handshake, but you certainly, um, you know, uh, we have sort of an affinity to to see each other and to, um, um, you know, to kind of hang out with each other a little bit. And um, I think you were doing a, a presentation or you had a poster, I think, when we met. But anyway, um, so you at the time said you were a unicorn in the occupational therapy profession. Do you want to explain a little bit about what an, a unicorn in the occupational therapy profession is? Yeah, so when I say that, I say it um, lovingly in a way, but when I say unicorn, just in regards to um, boxes that potentially you could um, click and like when you say, oh, occupational therapist or occupational therapy assistant, what might you not see? Um, that's usually <laughs> what I am in regards to it. Uh, so you may not be able to see me physically how tall I am, but for example, I'm a six foot four uh, black male um, that's an occupational therapy assistant becoming occupational therapist. Um, so when I say that term, I kind of say it in the sense of it's a lot of different boxes um, that I don't click per se um, based off of when we look at our demographics and breakdowns of what an occupational therapist or occupational therapy assistant typically looks like. Um, I don't really fit in those boxes. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about that. Gotcha. We, yeah, we both need big boxes, I guess, for, for us. We're both you know, uh, people of, of stature. Um, so that's for sure. Um, so can you talk a little bit about wh what's that like to be, a, you know, a, a black male in the occupational therapy profession? Well, you know, it, it's a little bit like what we just talked about, Dennis, when we meet each other. Um, it's, it's uh, I'll be honest with you, working with many black practitioners um, in the past or in my current uh, time frame, it's been very limited in regards to that. Um, and seeing, for example, maybe another black male, um, I did have that for experience on my last level two field work. Um, and that's the first time I think I worked with a another black male occupational therapist or occupational therapy assistant um, formally. So that's that's one of the things, right? And I said to you, I've been in this field at least 13 years. Um, so that's kind of where I say, yeah, um, it's unique to kind of work with your own um, in regards to that. Um, and honestly, I'll say this to you. Um, I've kind of just become used to it in a sense um, that in a sense, when I probably walk 
into a room most of the time, um, there's not going to be many that look like me. Um, and that's something I think we're going to talk about today and, you know, the, how that maybe needs to change. Um, because I do think that's very important for us as a profession um, to have others that maybe look like us, uh, to have some of those questions answered, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. Um, have you found um, black male occupational therapists that you've been able to, to serve as mentors for you? Or you're kind of at your phase in the career, you're starting to mentor other people as well, I'd imagine. Yeah, I mean, I'm at a crossroads in both. I would say I'm still early in my career with 13 years. You know, most time when I talk to a lot of uh, occupational, ther occupational therapy assistants, um, some of them have 20, 30 plus years of experience. Um, so I definitely say I'm maybe in my early slash mid phase. Um, but to answer your question, yes, absolutely. Um, I have seeked out um, black male um, mentorship in regards to that. And I do have a few. Um, and I think it was something for me that was very important to find um, just because in a way it allowed me to kind of see someone who went through maybe my similar pathway. Um, and there's sometimes maybe those questions that we need to talk together about those things as well. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, in terms of intersectionality, obviously you're a, you're a, a black man and, and an occupational therapy assistant and uh, studying to be an occupational therapist. Um, what do you think is the biggest difference? Is it um, being a, a, a black occupational therapy assistant or, or a male occupational therapy assistant. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah, I, I kind of get where your question from uh, is coming from in regards to it. I, I think, honestly, there's a, it's both in a way. Um, sure. I think in a sense, for example, societally, for example, um, African-Americans make about 13 percent of the population. Right. So there's already um, a normal day to day where, in a sense, I kind of understand I'm not going to see everyone that looks just like me. That's fine. Sure. Um, yeah. When it comes to my profession, though, there's like another layer of that. You're absolutely right. The intersectionality of it that. Yes, it's even maybe more of acute of an issue um, that, for example, I'm more than more than likely not going to see maybe somebody who's just a minority in general in our profession. Um, and this is something, you know, we need to you know work on it. I know, for example, it is an association and a, a professional goal, too, um, in regards to providing that diversity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how do you so in terms of that that mentorship, how have you really benefited from having, you know, black male mentors to to kind of help you um, within the profession? Well, you know, I think, for example, understanding the dynamics, um, I think we don't really talk about it maybe out loud, but we should. For example, um, males and females have interactions, right? And there's ways that, for example, um, with my stature of being 6'4", um, that, for example, when I'm even approaching a female um, that may, for example, be shorter, um, I've got to be careful of power dynamics of how, am I hovering over this person because that's not my intention to have that position, right? Um and, and I think that's something that we have to have those conversations about. And it's just kind of like, well, there's conversations from the mentorship about not just in regards to refresh and just in regards to probably life issues as well um, that I think are very beneficial to kind of bounce off, you know. So, for example, have you had a circumstance that maybe you got some eyes that you're kind of like, why are those eyes staring at me the entire time? But they're not maybe asking me a question. Um, those are sometimes things that that type of mentorship can provide. Um, but additionally, it can show you the opportunities that do exist um, and maybe not to make it as big of an issue um, if it's not necessary, you know, um, we can, for example, 
uh, easily work together. Um, and sometimes if you think about it this way, uh, there's the ability to work with someone and the ability to be a friend with someone. And they're very different, right? You don't have to always, in a sense, be a friend to everyone, but you do need to be able to work with others. Um, and I think that's where, for example, it's probably been the most beneficial is understanding sometimes um, this is my position on things. How do you think it might be taken? How it might be seen? Those type of things. Um, the mentorship has been invaluable in those ways. Gotcha. Great. So how did it just even, I don't know, probably was it a, a mentor? Maybe it was. How did you decide to, to become an occupational therapy assistant in the, in the first place? Or how did you learn about the profession and decide again? Yeah, thank you, Dennis. That's a great question. I think um, my, actually, it was my own um, decision in regards to it. So um, I was initially trying to potentially go into med school, and it just, honestly, grade-wise, et cetera, wasn't going to be working out of the path. Um, but additionally, one of the other things that came to me was is about patient care. Um, and I would, at first, I was going into my local university to check out uh, to be potentially an EMT. I felt it was something that would kind of fit well with me. Um, I was kind of a physical guy, so I was like, okay, makes some sense. Um, but when I went into my local university, uh, they talked to me about this profession called occupational therapy. Um, they provided me some literature, gave me some links, and kind of said to me, you know, this kind of sounds something that maybe is more of a career um, than maybe, for example, being just an EMT. For example, the EMT was a four-month certificate program versus right. a 16-month occupational therapy assistant program. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I was reviewing the things, I was like, no, I'm very interested in this. It looks good. Um, and I started to look at, for example, you know, your BLS uh, numbers in regards to job statistics. Um you know, what is the career earnings, those type of things. And I saw, okay, this is very viable to be able to um, sustain myself or my family. So that's just something that I think would be a good route. And honestly, that's where the, the itch was scratched. Um, and frankly speaking, um, I'm happy I made that decision to go into occupational therapy. Um, I love the profession. I love what we do. Um, and I love our discipline overall, you know, how we have an impact on people's lives. So that that's kind of my story of how to become it, how I became an occupational therapy assistant. Finally, Earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcasts. Just head over to OccupationalTherapy.com and sign up to start earning the CEUs you need online. You'll get unlimited access to hundreds of courses, including live webinars, on-demand videos, and text courses, and the audio courses you love for just $99 per year. And if you sign up today, you'll get 13 months of unlimited CEU access for the price of 12. This is an exclusive offer for our listeners, so don't wait. Go to OccupationalTherapy.com and use promo code PODCAST and get 13 months for just $99. Join thousands of your colleagues who are already earning their CEUs online with OccupationalTherapy.com, an AOTA-approved provider of continuing education and an NBCOT professional development provider. And don't forget to use promo code PODCAST at checkout to get your free bonus month. Once again, that's OccupationalTherapy.com, promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get started today. Gotcha. So I, I think of my own story. So when you talked about people having 30 years or so of experience, uh, that may be me. Um, so I, I, I remember I was, I was working at a um, sort of a, an adult day program for adults with intellectual disability. And it was really the, um, the OT there that uh, kind of said, you know, have you thought about 
this career, but she was sort of blatant saying, we are, we really want to get more men in the profession um, to try to, to diversify it. Um, and so that was um, kind of was my initial route and really looked at what I was doing and my own sort of philosophy of life. And it, it really fit well into that. But I don't know if we're quite as blatant <laughs> these days about recruiting men into the profession. We certainly have a lot of interest in diversifying and certainly we have to um, do a better job of, you know, encouraging um, underrepresented groups from from being part of the profession. But I, it almost seems like men are not really talked about as, as one of those groups that we need to, to reach out to. Um, I don't know what you think about that or um, what your experiences are around that. No, I mean, Dennis, I, I, we've had this conversation where we do see each other at conference, and I agree. I think that is um, a very, very um, intentional point. Um, it was intentional of how you were recruited, and I think, for example, um, how my start became, granted, it was indirect, but it was intentional. Somebody had to bring it up to me, and then I decided to make that decision. Um, I do think that intentionality is something we need to work on as a profession, um, frankly speaking, um, because when you really look at it from, I think, just an outside of a vacuum standpoint, right? If you look at demographics, for example, right? Um, worldwide, there are more males than females on this planet. That's a fact. And then if you also look at the fact that in the United States, our composition of our population is 51% female to 49% male. So if you really start to dig into that, right, and you say to yourself, well, if we're not intentionally looking at 49% of the population, well, now you're already reducing that pool for potential, for example, diversity initiatives, right? Because you're not looking at the full 320 plus million. You're looking more at like 150 million-ish, you know, 170 million-ish, et cetera, and trying to really draw from that your diversity component. Um, so that's one of the things, for example, when I look at like our communities of practice, um, there's a woman's health section, but there's not a men's health section. Um, and that's very interesting to me because when you even look at, for example, disabilities, right? Men start with disabilities at a younger peak age. So for example, a lot of our patients that we're seeing, for example, who are maybe, you know, starting to reach 60, 70 years old, those are likely male patients you're having in there. Um, and you do wonder, are we able to effectively provide everything that we say occupation-wise or occupation-based-wise without consideration, for example, that 49% that we're not really looking at or being intentional of? Um, because those are unique issues, right? So like prostate cancer, that's something that, yes, it could be built into pelvic health, but if it's not, for example, being scanned or looked at or talked about, well, then do we really know how to train our male practitioners who may be doing that more often than our female practitioners? Uh, we need to look at that. I, I think that's where some of those things we're looking at. When we're looking at issues of, for example, high blood pressure or stroke rates. Those do tend to, again, favor men in regards to those statistics. Um, and if we're treating those patients, um, we may not be optimally primed to be able to do that if we're not looking at the unique factors. You know, so for an example of something I want to say, like, for example, maybe a male versus female perspective that would look a little different when it comes to clinical care. Um, and I know it may sound a little bit um, primitive in a sense, but in, the, in regards to, for example, um, Bodily functions, right? So for example, if you're thinking about um, a male needing to urinate, yes, he can urinate sitting down, but there's also a dignity and pride initiative when you actually can stand up because that's maybe something you've done all the time. 
Um, and that does play a part, for example, in your motivation as a male sometimes to do things just like your peers, right? No different than our female counterparts. Um, and I think sometimes, for example, I've seen where it's like, well, he can pee sitting down. So, I mean, at least we've dealt with the issue. And it's like, yeah, temporarily, because here's the other part. There's a psychosocial aspect of that male who's dealing with that loss of being able to stand up to urinate for himself. You know, and I know that's kind of an example. Someone would say, OK, well, I get you. That's one. But I mean. Those are things that are very important. Um, and also, I think within our role composition as males, there are certain things that we need to have a talks of about how to address those things, because there is a psychosocial component that I think is a little bit different than maybe with a female patient. Just like we have to deal with as a male patient um, in regards to, for example, like dressing, right? Um, a female may feel more comfortable with another female. Well, that may be this case with many of our male patients. They might be like, in this particular care, I prefer a male because maybe I don't feel a certain gender uh, disconnect. But that's just, an, just a couple of examples. Gotcha. So speaking of that, have there been times in your profession when maybe uh a female has asked to have a different um, uh, therapist work with them, or has that has that ever come up for you, or how do you handle that as a as a male occupational therapy assistant? Absolutely, this has come up. Um, it's come up particularly when I think about it in a pediatric setting. Um, it, it's you. I think it's very something that we have to have communication with each male OT and OTA. Um, when you're dealing with children, for example, there's perceptions of a male treating a child. Um, there's sometimes a um, I would say to you uh, a cautiousness of you're a male and you're treating my child um, and it's my daughter, you know, I, that dynamic I don't feel comfortable with. Um, and I understand that um, and I don't take it personally. A lot of times I'm like, okay, no problem. Um, I'll proceed to treat whatever children are in front of me and who want care. Um, but many a time it's also become a case of um, through doing my work, you end up seeing those things start to blur where they're like, you know, he's really good. I know you may be tentative about male treating your female child, but he's very professional. He's not going to do anything. And you see a trust develop and evolve. Right. Um, and we see that, I'm sure, with our male patients, too, with our female therapists, that happens as well. Um, but, yeah, specifically to me, yeah, it's happened in pediatrics. It's happened in adults in treating and transfers. You know, that's sometimes been the case of we're going to do upper body dressing. And it's like I prefer somebody else to do it. I understand. Um, so, yes, definitely face those issues for sure. For me, it was almost on the other end that I, I was um, kind of filling it at a school for the blind um, for a, an occupational therapist that had, so her caseload was full. So I kind of came in to make sure kids got the, the minutes that they, they were in their IEP. Um, and so our deal turned out to be she had two teenage boys at home. And so she, she any teenage boy automatically went on my caseload just because she had enough of teenage boys at home. And uh, one of my favorite uh, students I ever worked with there, I, after I evaluated, I came back and I said, well, I have a diagnosis for you. And she said, what's that? And I said, 14-year-old boy. And so I said, because that, that is a diagnosis. Like a 14-year-old boy is, is just an interesting interesting bird. So anyway, um, but it's, um, you know, I think we're, as a profession, we're trying, um, you know, to uh, increase diversity. And, um, you know, I don't think we have great numbers yet to show that much of what we're doing is working. I think part of our issue tends to be is we, we work with students 
pretty late, you know, so I know like some of the diversity initiatives when I was at Ohio State, you know, it, it tended to be with the, the College of Medicine and it was kind of like, um, you know, they would have um, students from underrepresented groups for a week and we'd get them for an hour or two hours. And it was kind of like, well, if you don't get into med school, um, you know, kind of think about us, but we need to do a better job, I think, of of working with, with younger students. And the nice thing is we're in lots and lots of schools out there. So, um, you know, hopefully we've got some some opportunity to, to look at you know, um, doing things differently. So I, I know when I, um, it used to be, I haven't seen it recently, but there used to be, um, when I first go in, started to go into to AOTA, there would be signs up. Have you ever told you this story in men's rooms where it was like, we're going to meet at the whatever bar at 6 p.m. on Thursday. So it was like this kind of secret like group of male OTs that, that would get together um, to do that. And then uh, that was never officially recognized. And then there was a, a movement called Bro T, which was started out at, at Jefferson University that kind of uh, has... I don't know what happened to it, um, but uh, kind of went away. Um, but now there's um, a group called Brothers that you're involved in. That's black male registered occupational therapy, healthcare professionals, assistants, and students. Um, can you talk a little bit how that organization? It is a it is a mouthful, but it's a great name. So B R O T H A S Brothers. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that organization started? Yes. Yeah, so actually, uh, the organization started um, in its thoughts and processes started before this, but in about 2020, um, after the events of the George Floyd uh, murder, in regards to that, um, a group of us black males started to meet online um, to talk more about um, our part in our profession. Um, because we felt, for example, it was a particular area of a profession that uh, there was a lot of... <laughs> There was a lot of not things being historically documented or talked about um, and talked about potentially the contributions of black male occupational therapists, occupational therapy assistants in our profession. Um, so when we came together after um, George Floyd's murder, we started to talk about um, more or less how could we mobilize to somewhat assist each other in the community? Um, because what we kind of thought about is, is, you know, the simplest thing of every one of us went through a program and a lot of times unless we went to an HBCU, there was not maybe another one of us next to us. Um, and there was a poor sense of belonging. And that led to, for example, poor, you know, career accomplishments, or unfortunately, some who transitioned out of our profession. So one of the things that we were looking at was how could we promote and amplify those voices. Um, so we came up with this group called Brothers. Um, and essentially, you know, um, me in addition to, you know, uh, six other great uh, African American males um, came up with the combination of OTs and OTAs. We came together to kind of start to say, this is how we think we're going to be able to do this. Um, so we started to put together some events overall to one, um, you know, attract our community and see, you know, what the interest was in being able to do this. Very similar to Bro OT that you were talking about. We wanted to make sure that we were meeting a need. Um, and for sure, we got a lot of feedback from um, African-American males that, yes, we, we did not have a lot of support and the mentorship was a lot of times they did not see another black male OT or OTA um, in their entire time in school. And it felt like a poor sense of belonging. That's something that we got a lot back from feedback from the community. So we decided to put on these events and we've had a very good participation in regards to it. Um, but overall, the focus of the group 
is one to promote um, and to make sure that you feel supported. You know, you belong in this profession and know that you have a point. Um, and maybe, for example, some of those questions you might have, you have someone now you can ask those questions to. Um, we really take a viewpoint of us not just spotlighting our leadership. We make sure to, for example, we're really trying to spotlight the black male contribution to our profession. So we look at all different areas and kind of reach out to each other and say, hey, what are you doing out there? Because maybe someone doesn't know. Um, and there's, you know, we have African-American males, for example, wearing healthcare systems. They're, they're running departments fully. Or, for example, they're finance and they're running, you know, CFOs of corporations. And you go, wow, you know, it's wonderful to know these things um, because a lot of times people say it doesn't exist. Well, I see firsthand it does exist. Um, and I see those contributions through brothers. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for asking about that, Dennis. Um, and that's a, it, we're definitely growing. Um, we look forward to continuing. Yeah. So would you say that your decision to go back to school is kind of related to brothers maybe or no? I think it might be in a way. I mean, so for example, I think it was a personal decision for me to definitely go back to be an occupational therapist. Um, but I do think going forward, there are some parts of also making sure um, other African-American males um, maybe see, for example, these are potential things you can do too. Um, it's not that I'm, I'm, I may, I may say, for example, you know, playfully, I'm a unicorn, but I'm saying to you, there's a pathway for you in this profession too. Um, and there's a very successful pathway. It's just more or less, we need to maybe start to talk and not sometimes as well, just kind of say, well, I'm not seeing it. So I don't know where it is. Well, we want to make sure that you know that there's a place. Um, so that's where I would say yes, for sure. Gotcha. Um, if people are interested in getting more involved with brothers, um, what's the the best way for them to do that? So we have brothers um, in OT.org. So we have a website that's set up for that. Um, so it's B-R-O-T-H-A-S uh, in OT.org. Um, but additionally, we have Facebook pages and LinkedIn pages. Um, and that's how we typically um, communicate and link up. So those would be the best avenues. Um, but the website to actually sign up there is probably the best of the options. Um, just go to brothers in OT.org and be able to kind of access that. Great. And so you have online meetings and then do you have kind of meetups at AOTA or usually there's a poster or presentation that you do, right? Yeah. So we try to make sure that we always contribute to the conference in some capacity. Um, so yes, we'll either have short sessions that we're part of and we let people know, um, or we'll have specific events for us to have a meetup at conference, annual conference. Um, AOTA has been very supportive of that. So just want to give them kudos for that. Um, but additionally, when it comes to most of our meetings, yes, they're held virtually. And the reason why we do a that a lot of times is because it's an accessible area um, and we know that we have a greater reach when we're online um, and it's very convenient for a lot you know for most people where they can go okay are you okay with me jumping in on my phone it's like sure we're gonna have a zoom <laughs> session we'd love to have you if you want to jump on through your phone you don't need to have your camera on if you feel comfortable that's great um, but we really try to create an environment of you know community and coming together um, and those particular outsourced events they're usually open to anyone um, when we have our personal meetings obviously it's focused usually uh, towards african-american males and, and males of di black diaspora or african diaspora um, but we for example um, our typical events are completely open to anyone to attend so let's say that there's a maybe a faculty member listening right now or just a um, you know a 
a, let's say, white female occupational therapist. Let's throw a dart at the wall and imagine that uh, many of our listeners are white female occupational therapists. Would you, if they have a, a student or if they know uh, a young African-American male that's interested in OT, would you suggest, like, should they reach out and say, hey, here's a group if you're interested in reaching out? Or is that overstepping a line? No, no, we don't think that's overstepping a line. The way we typically think about it is that here's the thing. If you don't think you're able to maybe, for example, support those students and you need an avenue, that's what we're there for. Um, if the student is looking for an avenue of support, that's what we're there for. So, no, we are very open um, to anyone reaching out to us. Um, it's just sometimes a capacity issue, I think, at times, too. Um, this might be, you didn't talk about it, but it's kind of like with bro T, right? We are a minority. So, if, for example, we have an influx of, hey, we have 50 students at once, we need mentorship. That can sometimes create bottlenecks for us, um, but we still open, we're still very open because the idea of our support is it's virtual, you know? So sometimes it's, hey, you can drop a chat on uh, the Facebook page or drop it on a LinkedIn page and maybe someone can respond there and that's how you're getting support. Um, or maybe for example, you find another brother that's inside the organization that's in your same state. And now you can meet up face to face. So that's really the avenues we're, we're looking at in a way to create that community virtually, but then extend it into in-person yeah. as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm a bit husky uh, as, a, as a male, and I think um, any time uh, that I've ever been in a clinical situation, um, any patient that maybe had a little size was automatically paste, placed on my caseload, and I never resented that or anything like that. But has that been kind of your experience as well, that, that we became kind of transfer experts because uh, we, we, we are people of size? I think that's 100% the truth. Um, and I, like you said, uh, I've never taken offense to it or anything, <laughs> but yes, for sure. That absolutely is the case. Yeah. Transfer, uh, transfers expert. I'd like to say that for sure. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny. So I was actually the first man to teach at Ohio state and, uh, the program started in 1943 during world war two. And one of our first students in that first class was a, was a male. Um, so we think he was the first male to go to an occupational therapy program at a university. Um, so we started off diverse. Um, there's also a nun in that class, which is just kind of an interesting, should have been an interesting lunches they had together with, there were six of them, but a nun, a, a nun, a, a man, and then four other people. Um, but uh, so when I started in 2004, that was 61 years in, um, I was there for 10 minutes and I was asked to help move a desk, you know, so it's like, <laughs> you know, some stereotypes in occupational therapy kind of continue um, throughout that. Not that we have uh, certainly some of our colleagues that are great at transfers and great at, at moving desks, but, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, I, I have my role, I guess, in, in terms of, of what, what, uh, what that looks like. Um, do you think... Um, there are advantages to being a male within the profession uh, in terms of being hired or, um, you know, that we stand out a little bit more um, when we're, you know, being uh, when we're interviewing against other other uh, occupational therapy personnel. Um, I think at times, I mean, if I, the way I like to think about it is, is, you know, when we talk about applying for a job, you always try to say, you know, so what's your unique piece? <laughs> well, in a sense, that is my unique piece, right? Like, for example, 
when I come into an interview, yeah, it may be a surprise that, oh, it's a male. Okay, well, now those transfers that I maybe didn't really consider or think about, I'm like, oh, well, to my team, if I don't have, uh, I'm going to add this to the team. Um, so I do think, yes, um, I, I take it as a strength. Um, but, you know, there are, I think, for example, weaknesses that occur outside or external that occur with that too. Um, but yes, I do think, for example, there, there are advantages um, in that case, for sure. So what, you, you think there's some disadvantages to being a male as well? I think so at times. I think, for example, we have to talk about that issue, right? You know, so for example, being a male in a female-dominated profession, I think there are times that, for example, um, why maybe the, it's not that there's not a desire to increase male input, but I think, for example, change is, is difficult. And I think sometimes people are concerned, will my profession change drastically from what it maybe looks like? is good in my eyes, right? And I think that's just normal. Um, and I think that's where I would say sometimes, yeah, it's a weakness in the sense of you maybe looked at more of as a rival, more than a, you know, a teammate. Um, there's a competitive aspect maybe, you know, uh, that I think does occur. I think there's competition all the time going on, right? But I do think, for example, it might be like, well, you're a male therapist. What's your intention? Are you gonna change the environment? Are we gonna have to maybe change the way that we say our talk? There's sometimes I think that aspect that does occur. Um, but as I said to you, I don't really make it. Um, I haven't made it bother me in the profession. Neither have you, Dennis. But I think it's just something that um, to speak out loud. Yeah, it, it, it needs to be said that, yeah, it can be sometimes taken as a disadvantage. I've heard of, for example, students who sometimes when they're talking about what is a occupational therapist or occupational therapist assistant look like, sometimes in the, the statement, it's kind of like, well, it's a female. You know, so those are things that, for example, um, I do think, yeah, there's at times those issues. So do you think there would might be other advantages to having more males within the profession? I think there's definitely advantages. As I said to you, uh, if you're trying to really look at when you look at matching up the client population, as I said to you, 49 percent of the population in the United States is male. So if we do not have enough male representation, there could be issues, for example, we're not, for example, um, addressing their occupation-based needs as appropriately as maybe we think. We might be assuming at times, right? Um, and I think this is where we need, we do need to have talks about that. It's not that, for example, we need a 50-50 split. That's not what the conversation is. The conversation is an increase. And I think, yes, that would absolutely um, help um, because having that better gender diversity in regards to things, I think is it's helpful in regards to dealing with the patient population that we're seeing out there. Yeah. So as a, as a faculty member, oftentimes, uh, not often, but occasionally you'd have students that would call with issues with particular patients and maybe it was a, an older male, you know, that had had a stroke and was reluctant to participate in therapy. And it, it really goes to, well, what are the, what are the occupations that you're, you're asking them to engage in? And, and those are some things that sometimes um, there might be not a disconnect, but it, you know, just to, as we think about, you know, um, the advantage of having differences within our profession, I think of even, um, you know, during um, uh, some of the, the listening sessions that, that occurred after um, the George Floyd murder, um, you know, I heard a lot of, of um, African-American, especially females, talk about even um, uh, African-American women's hair 
and how like, there's no preparation at all to to realize you know how you know you, you have a comb you know that doesn't that doesn't work and and just kind of the the blindness of our profession sometimes in terms of meeting the diverse needs of the clients that we're trying to work with and you know having more African Americans as part of that in terms of dealing uh, or, or helping support African American uh, patients with their hair makes that easier and I think the same is true for males you know in terms of some of the the issues that that men have I I just remember <laughs> um, do you even know what copper tooling is is that still taught at all? Have you heard of copper Absolutely. tooling? Okay, so that was. <laughs> yeah. I just remember in, in our in our um, mental health course, like, oh, make sure you have you know topper copper tooling kits around in case you have males male patients. And I thought, well, that's one thing I I, I never heard of or, or used copper tooling before after occupational therapy school. But well, I mean, yes, and it's those type of you know stereotype uh, sometimes occupations where you're like, well, I mean, no, maybe that's not what we want to do, right? So for for example, there's plenty of males who love to cook. <laughs> Maybe they want to do cooking. Um, I, I, I agree with you, Dennis. There's definitely those things. And I think um, like copper tooling, it's a very, yeah, stereotype kind of thing of, yeah, it's what a male would probably want to do versus, you know, or for example, leather working. I know that was another one that's said. Um, but for example, there's female patients that want to do copper tooling and they want to do leather working too. I, I guess what I'm getting at is, is yes, that could be an area, as I said to you, a blind spot. I don't, I don't take it as it's an intentional desire not to have male. Um, but I do think, for example, those blind spots we do need to be aware of because we may be missing the, the buck on those things sometimes um, because we're only having limited viewpoints on what we're seeing. Um, and I think for our profession, we're stronger when we have more of those diverse viewpoints. We, you know, as I said to you, um, there's a way to have those conversations too. And I think that sometimes is the issue. Um, a lot of times when it comes to maybe our voice, sometimes something that's personal, you get a little worked up about it. Um, and maybe people, for example, you know, they don't take it as well. But um, yes, I do think, for example, having um, input of male uh, contributions to hair management, um, male specific health issues. Yeah. Those are definitely uh, things to be talked about. You know, obviously, we're preparing generalists within the the academic setting, um, and so you know, kind of think about you know if uh, certainly we can all work with all different types of patients, uh, regardless of our background. But you know, it does make sense that you know if you're if there's a transgender um, client that they may be more comfortable. Um, with having a transgender occupational therapy practitioner to work with them, or a woman who's dealing with a, with incontinence, kind of like, you know, may prefer to have a female for assessment intervention, or um, you know, a male that's had a spinal cord injuries, uh, who's dealing around you know issues of of sexual performance, um, may you know feel more comfortable with a with a male. And I I can actually think of three particular practitioners, so one that's transgender, that that is um, their primary area of practice. I can think of one of my former classmates that has start up, started up a um, kind of a pelvic uh, floor, pelvic health practice, and that's that's kind of what she does. And then I think of a of an occupa a male occupational therapist at Ohio State that works um, on their outpatient. Um, so he's kind of created this really cool situation for himself, um, working primarily with folks with with spinal cord injuries. Um, around all sorts of, of male health issues, but also um, 
uh, adaptive sports and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, the diversity of our profession, and it's not to say, again, that we can't all work with, with other types of people, but, you know, sometimes just based on our own interests um, is going to uh, kind of, you know, the, the type of practice that we're interested in, or maybe even um, entrepreneurial opportunities are going to flow from kind of our own personal experiences. I don't know if that's been your experience or if I'm just throwing things out there. I don't know. No, I, I think it is true. I mean, I think the way I think the occupational therapy practitioners is usually a passion and then a purpose, right? So if that is the case, for example, when you said uh, having a transgender individual um, make sure that they, for example, maybe treating someone who is transgender. Um, yeah, I think, for example, they have expertise that, for example, I do know in my skill set, uh, it does not exist as strongly, right? So I would want them to go to the person with the most skills and the most understanding, compassion, and purpose in that area. And if that is somebody who, for example, belongs from the community, um, yes, that can be the case. Um, additionally, as we know, for example, yes, we are very well trained to treat a lot of different things, even though if we're not it. Um, but I do think, for example, having that having that visual and that belonging piece is very important. You know, those with disabilities, for example, if we're not, for example, males with disabilities, are we addressing them 100 percent? in the way that we could be. That's something we need to talk about. Um, and seen and unseen things. So for example, anxiety in males manifest a lot different than it does in females. So we need to somewhat maybe talk about that too, right? Um, and also our gender roles, right? We need to talk about how that comes into play. I've heard from students, for example, male students who will say, I have a real hard time being able to be in the program because I have, uh, you know, I have a child and I gotta, you know, I gotta fend for them. I have to care give. I have to be able to provide. Um, so being on field work, for example, for six months, how am I supposed to take care of my family sure. when I'm the breadwinner per se, right? Um, that's an issue that, for example, us males would be able to speak about maybe uniquely of how did you do it? Um, how did you plan for that process? Um, so I do think these are issues that we have to talk about. Um, our males, for example, who are working while they're in the program um, and being a father, um, those are issues to be discussed, I think, very loud and proud um, because they have perspectives that we need to hear um, in regards to that family system process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you see almost a reluctance among the profession to actively recruit males? Or I don't know if I'm making that up. Let me know. I don't think you're making it up. I think there's more, as I said to you, I think the truth is, is that we're a profession that will, for one thing that we are maybe lacking and we could probably all agree on is resources. And I think there's a question of, of how can we address this without drawing resources from another area? I think that's more of where it comes from, the, the reluctance or apprehension to it. Um, I've not faced an issue of a female saying to me, you know, why didn't you become PT or why didn't you go into, I've never heard that. So I want to, you know, stay that as well. But I do think, for example, um, there is sometimes maybe a reluctance of how, how do I do it? You know, how do we get males? You know, and I think, again, some of that is where we have to also look societally of how things are, right? If you think about the, the statistics that come out, six in 10 of Americans, for example, they end up residing 10 miles from where they grew up, six in 10. And then eight in 10 usually live within 100 miles of where they grew up. 
So that kind of says to you some interesting dynamics there when you think about, for example, where are we maybe opening up all the universities? If they're all, for example, near big cities, well then, for example, we're not addressing those rural communities, right? Um, and there's a, there's wonderful OTs I see doing stuff with, for example, farmers. I rarely hear about it that often. I have to go seek it. But I'm like, this is a huge area that I'm like, I'm like, listen, I go to an agricultural and mechanical university. That's where they started the foundations of the rural community. So when you see those type of things, you're like, well, then how are we addressing those communities? Right. It's a blind spot. We're not we're not we're not doing it as much as we could. Um, so we do need to think about that, too. Where are universities opening versus, you know, saturation, oversaturation? Um, but long story short, yes, I do think um, intentional we need to be. And I think at times there is a reluctance to it um, due to probably considerations tied directly to resources and being like, well, if we dedicate this to attracting males, well, what are we taking away from? And I think, for example, there might be ways to do it micro uh, process, uh, resource management um, to allow some of that growing to happen. Um, and I think, for example, just having a dedicated space, for example, for men's health would maybe be very beneficial because, for example, there might be outreach to be done by males themselves. Right. Um, if me and you, for example, we're having this conversation right now. Um, if we have others, it might be a conversation of, have you actively gone out to the community and maybe promoted, you want to be an OT? I'm one. That could be something that's being said, right? But that, that experience is different between each one of us. Um, and I think, though, it still requires um, leadership to be on board with these type of things. That's just, I would say that for sure, too. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you're saying AOTA has been supportive of brothers. Um, but you wonder about... Um, could there be a, you know, a, a group for male OTs um, at the national level or not? Um, I don't know if that would be if that would be well, well accepted or if it wouldn't be well accepted. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's what I'll do in, in my uh, almost retirement. I, I got a few years before retirement, but um, it'd be interesting. I, I think, Dennis, I think it's a wonderful idea. And I think it's something that um... <sighs> I think it's it's needed because I think, for example, it's it's being very intentional. And I think one thing that we really started to even in our conversation today, that intentional element, it matters. Right. Like that's your saying, for example, no, we're looking for males. Um, if you, you want to come to the profession, we'd love to kind of support you. We have, you know, programs, we have pathways, we have things to kind of, you know, support you in this profession because right now we may not have it. Um, but it's something that we're looking to do, right? Um, and I think we've seen it in different professions, right? Nursing had this similar conversation, and, and nursing's gotten some diverse components. It's still heavily female, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, no one's trying to take that away. Um, but I think, for example, increasing male contributions, it's been beneficial, I think, to the nursing profession. Um, so I think it's something that, for example, we as a profession need to look at, especially a profession that's very dedicated to life, in general and societal needs, um, I think then we need to make sure that we're addressing as much as we can and not limiting ourselves in any ways. Yeah, absolutely. Now I know you took a little took a look at the AOTA 
um, the latest salary um, survey to look at see percentage-wise. Could you talk a little bit about some of those numbers in terms of percentage of of males that are in the profession, and then African male, African male, African American male specifically? Absolutely. So when we look at males in the profession, uh, more approximately about eight percent, right? Uh, so seven point eight. So it's approximately eight um, percent. There's three percent that are kind of gender um, non identifying, and then there's like a little bit of other distributing facts, but about eight percent. Um, when we look about black males, OTs and OTAs, we're tracking less than one percent. Um, so that's that's what we're looking at, right? Um, we're not very diverse in regards to one having males in our profession. As said to you, we're 91% female um, or other identities. Um, and when we look at, for example, black males as OTs or OTAs, we're at 1% or less than that. Um, so it's not a very large community. So that's where, you know, when I talk about the unicorn example, yeah, I'm usually like, I'm in that less than 1% walking around here. And it's not that I'm always looking just for them, but I'm like, wow, look, oh, it's another black OTA or another black OT. Um, I haven't seen one. It, it's kind of, wow, hi, where are you from? Oh, I'm in New York doing wonderful things. You're like, okay, okay. Um, so those are kind of where the numbers look at. Um, and as I said to you, they haven't really changed much in the last 15 years of um, those workforce surveys. I think they've gone down a little bit. Yeah, that it's a little less, a little more female. I think they have. I think overall, when I was just saying about the numbers, we have to continue to to, to grow those numbers overall, um, because I think, like you said, it even may have gone down a little bit. But also remember, as a profession, we seem to have gotten younger, too. And I think that's part of it as well. Right. That feeds into our college demographics that we know, for example, in most university settings, um, we're getting like a 70 30 split female to male. So that's another issue when it comes to even attracting that's another issue we had to deal with, right, is the supply of males versus females. It's it's obviously skewed towards females, and there's nothing wrong with it. That's, but that's what we have to deal with. We're not in a vacuum, right? So um, it's important to have those considerations and understand those numbers, though, so we can kind of make uh, intentional uh, moves to in- increase uh, diversity overall. Yeah, I think so. Like, as you said, the number of males is certainly declining in terms of going into college and university. Um, and we, we're growing uh, the number of OT programs and OTA programs across the country. Um, but they're having trouble filling their classes. It's sort of the the great, um, <laughs> I don't know if it's a secret or not, but um, we've grown a lot of, a lot of uh, OT and OTA programs, but a lot of them are not meeting their um, their numbers in terms of bringing students in so it may be a, a really good time to, to sneak some more men into the profession if we if we can do that so um, you know I think that's yeah, sorry. I think that also goes back to a little bit earlier when I was saying about where universities are located, et cetera. That, that's a big issue too, right? If we have if we have these clusters, you know, when you look at like the Northeast, for example, um, there's some states where you know, they'll tell me, oh, I got eight OT programs in a 100-mile radius. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot. And they're like, yeah, and it creates a lot of competition and not being able to kind of get everything. So I agree with you. If we could open up, we don't need to be closing off access to 49%, right? So if we have opportunities to get the male talent, I think that's where we need to do it is in a sense, 
the start for me is at least make it that, guess what, uh, we're doing profession um, and that in a sense, if we're going to do and we're teaching doing, we need to mail contribution to it. Um, and in doing that, that we have a more, um, a stronger profession. So to me, I think we need to not be closing the door to anyone. Um, obviously, we need to kind of be opening it up to say, we don't know what it looks like as an occupational therapist or occupational therapy assistant. Um, we would love for you to be part of this profession because you're talented and you provide some type of societal uh, impact. We'd love to have you, you know, so that's yeah. how I see it, too. Yeah. And I, I think there's not a ton of research out there about male OTs. Um, so maybe that's what you'll do with your your uh, your professional career after this, too. Um, I have big plans for you, Andre. We're going to you're going to take over the world. So hopefully. Um, but there's so a lot of like our, our thought about why men don't go into occupational therapy are um, we say it's largely because it's it's a helping profession and men have in, other interests than helping people is sort of the stereotype that's out there. But when you talk to male OTs, that's um, that's really not uh, wasn't a, a deciding factor for them on on becoming OTs or not, and really had um, good. Uh, career satisfaction and felt good about uh, the choices that they'd made. Um, and as you said, other helping professions, nursing doesn't have that much higher percentage than us. And even PT, which I think of as being having a lot more men, is really only at about 30% of male PTs that are out there. So I think there's um, there's some hope for us. Um, and, and it's funny, um, male OTs kind of report feeling stereotyped by some of their, their female peers um, um, and uh, kind of are said to be more likely to go into management positions. Um, and there is, when you look at the salary um, surveys, there is certainly a, a difference in terms of of salary between male and female. Uh, and, you know, there's probably a lot of reasons that go into that, um, that uh, in terms of, um, women that, that may have children that may, uh, work part-time, um, some of those things that could, could go into that, but I'm not, that's not my area of research. So I haven't delved into that, um, too much. I don't know if you, um, have any thoughts about that or, um, kind of, if you felt like you've been stereotyped a little bit by some of your female colleagues in terms of, of, uh, your role as a male in the profession. Yeah, I would say, for example, um, I have not dealt with a lot of it personally. I'll just be you know, very transparent in, about that. Um, have I dealt with it somewhat? Sure, of course. Maybe questioning, for example, are you really that empathetic? Like, you're in a profession that... But I would kind of say to a lot of people, I say, yeah, we're helping. But remember, I, I hate the way I like to really frame it is we're not just helping. We're doing like it's a doing profession. Um, so helping is more of what I think about. I'm like, that's more nursing. Right. We're doing. Um, and when that means doing, that means you have to know how I'm going to do things. Uh, I'll give you a simple example. Tying shoelaces. We may all say it's one way process, but it's not. We all tie our shoelaces with variation. Right. Um, and I think, for example, with males, there are things that we need to talk about that. Yeah, maybe there's a male side of this that we need to hear on these uh, conversations about occupations, because there's two sides to those occupations that occur. You know, um, taking care of your house, for example, or child caring that that there are usually two sides to that equation. Um, and if we're not addressing both sides, I feel like we're not as strong as we could be. Um, so that part, I do think, goes into 
and there, I, I, it is a hundred percent true that unfortunately, um, females are making less than males. Um, why that is there. We also need to investigate that, right? Find out the reasons behind it. I, I, I'm not afraid to hear those things. And I think that's where I tell a lot of females, you know, I, I'm probably the biggest woman empowerment person I could possibly be. I definitely want to see females strive, but I think we as a profession to be as strong as possible too, we need to make sure that we do have males that are in a profession and we want them. How can we make sure that process is, um, it's welcoming. And then, you know, that's a part too that I do think um, we need to have conversations about. I mean, as I said, um, we don't have all the answers and there is more, there's a lot of research that needs to get done, but that's where I'm kind of saying, let, let's do it. Let's start it. Because as I said, it's not to change the overall fabric of our profession. It's just to strengthen us going into another decade. You know, that's how I see it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, as I said, a lot of the, the research that's been done are, are tiny samples, not to criticize the research that's been done, but just have been tiny. And, you know, um, but you're right, you know, there is something to be said about, um, you know, men making more within the profession than than women are and, and looking at that um, and why that is, you know, as it's true across, you know, other, uh, you know, with throughout our economy. Um, and we need to, to get to the bottom of, of why that might be. So um, any other thoughts you have on how, what we can do or what the person that's listening today might um, do to help recruit, recruit more males to the profession? Yeah, you know, my solid piece about this is I think when it comes to these things, the first thing we have to really do is we have to be opening and intentional with it and we have to be um, wanting of it, right? So a lot of things when it comes to diversity initiatives are just in general. If it's not supported by up top, it usually is going to be bound to fail um, because in a sense, it needs some type of resources and support. Um, and resources don't always have to come in monetary purposes. It's sometimes it's support in regards to saying, no, we want to do this. Um, it is a definitive aim. You know, so for example, when I'm seeing um, minority male participation, there is a huge push by even the American Medical Association to address it because they're saying, for example, the weaknesses that were addressed, we are literally within our system creating weaknesses of our practitioners because we don't have a balance. Now, it does not have to be 50-50, but that's kind of what they're talking about is if we're not maybe having those conversations or having someone bringing up, well, you know, hold on, in this process, a man tends to do it this way or a man might be considering these things in that situation, um, it doesn't it doesn't lead us to be as strong of a position as we may think, right? Because in a sense, we're saying occupations are we're occupation based and that's how we address patients. But if you're not addressing all of the population with your occupations or having considerations for them, you can see how, for example, you might be missing something without intentionally wanting to miss something. Um, and I think that's what we really need to focus on is, is what are we trying to do? So from up top, I would say program directors, please be open to having males in your program. Um, think about, for example, how you're marketing those things. I think, for example, sometimes why PT maybe gets more males is when you look at, for example, sports. Um, those type of things. If you're marketing that, hey, you can come work for the Miami Dolphins or you might work for the Miami Heat or you're going to work with male athletes. 
Well, if I'm an athlete, that's very much my purpose. And I'm like, okay, well, I may not be able to be an athlete anymore, but now I can maybe help a fellow athlete down the way, right? Um, or if it's in teaching, I think these are just things that when we look at it, we need to look at how we also market to our programs and where we're marketing. So for example, are we having males have input on where exactly are you going to recruit these males, right? So for example, think about Medicaid patients. I would love to see the data on Medicaid patients in, um, you know, impoverished areas and see demographically, is there a difference? Does that change compared to when you treat, for example, Medicare community? Because I think, for example, we might see some things in that data that say, well, hold on. Part of the problem is, is that we don't have enough practitioners in that area, even though there's enough practitioners overall to treat in that area. Right. So there's a reason why they're not going to that area. Um, that that would be one of our biggest things. And pathway programs. I think, as I said to you, we need to consider when we're saying diversity, males should be part of that conversation piece. Um, because they are, um, by statistical means, they are diverse and they are lacking. So it's not it's not an issue to be like, well, you know what, we gained uh, an Asian American male to our program. Well, there you have a diversity component. It's a male who's Asian. What's wrong with that? I mean, that's kind of what I'm getting at is that diversity has many flavors and colors and looks. Um, so we need to make sure that in a sense we're not. Um, bias to maybe, for example, not allowing people to be in a program or not presenting our program how it could be, you know, um, occupational therapy does not look the same everywhere we go. So we kind of have to make sure too that when I'm marketing it to certain people, it may be marketed differently, right, to what their interests are, their passion. Um, so yes, I do think that's uh, maybe a couple ways, Dennis, um, but I'm sure there's a lot more others that we could talk about. Um, but those are a few Absolutely. Could you talk about a pathway program or what a pathway program is? So a pathway program, if you think about it this way, it's basically an intentional program that's set up in some capacity to intentionally address an issue. So if it was males, it would be a pathway program to say, all right, well, maybe, for example, we're going to collaborate with an all-male university to provide two seats of occupational therapists that when they want to go to graduate school, right? So for example, if it was, I'll use an HBCU, for example, Morehouse, it's all male. So you would say for them, okay, well, if you have any graduate students from your from your bachelor's programs, uh, say it was, for example, Georgia State uh, University, they would be like, well, we'll take two seats that if any uh, qualified black male wants to come through this program, we have dedicated two seats to make sure that that process occurs. Um, so that's the way you could do pathway programs. Um, but another way to do it is also through your um, advisory boards and essentially set it up that in a sense you're like, well, what organization it is, do they have a diverse pipeline that we could kind of connect to us to kind of create that foundational piece, right? Or you look at programs that maybe historically are uh, graduating occupational therapy assistants who want to become occupational therapists and you figure out how to create a program that better aligns or streamlines that process for them to now go into your OT program. So those are different ways pathway programs can look like, um, but essentially you're just making a very intentional um, 
point to say, I want to increase this demographic group. Um, and it's not removing someone else. It's just saying, well, to do this, we have to foster it at the beginning to some capacity, right? Because if you don't have that capacity that exists, it's not there, right? Because I cannot say to you, well, you know, we have a diverse clinical population. No, we don't. So we're gonna have to start it in a way in the academic setting, get it grounded, support it. And then at that point, as they transition into clinical practice, then practitioners would be mentoring them to hopefully foster that. Yes, this profession is one that, for example, it may not be diverse, but there's avenues that we have to support it and we can grow it, right? So that's also another problem I think sometimes with diversity, our pathway programs is we think it's just about getting them in. It's not. It's also about supporting them throughout their professional journey. So that's within the program and as they transition into practice to ensure, for example, the support is there for optimal outcomes of those uh, individuals. I think a lot of times our pathway programs, sometimes they, they, they're very good at getting people, but they're not very good at supporting throughout that career. And then you end up seeing other issues expose themselves where they didn't feel they had enough mentorship, they didn't have enough support to actually be successful. Um, so we have to look at it con throughout the continuum, I think, within our occupational therapy programs and out in practice as well. Well, Andre Johnson, thank you so much. Uh, good luck on your second uh, level two clinical coming up and look forward to seeing it at AOTA uh, again this year. Thank you, Dennis, and looking forward to it. Uh, great conversation today, um, and thank you so, so much. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, take care.